Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal and indivisible capital, Jerusalem, since King David's time. Once again, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Pulse of Israel. If you are not yet a subscriber for our inspiring, politically incorrect truth, please click to subscribe. And if you like this episode, and you are going to like this episode, and it's an important episode, and you want to make us, you want to help us have it seen by more people, just click on the donate button. All right, today I want to introduce you to our guest, and this is not the first time that we are having uh, Professor Richard Landis. It's already the second time, I believe, so go back in the archives and watch the first one. Professor Landis was a professor of medieval history at Boston University, and today... A scholar, retired, independent scholar, and, and only retired from the busy work. Still very busy. Still very busy. Yeah. All right. And we are having Richard here today because he has just uh, written a new book. Can the, can the whole world be wrong? Lethal journalism, anti-Semitism, and global jihad. And if anyone is in Israel... There is a special event this Tuesday night in Jerusalem at the Begin Center launching the book. Be there. Why did you write this book, Richard? Well, to be honest, I started, and my wife remembers well when I said this, I started when a, my friend Charles Jacobs said to me, I had a blog at the time, and he said, you've got to write some of this stuff up as a book. And I said, okay. And I said to my wife, this should be really easy. It'll take, you know, maybe six months. I'll pull the best episode, best items from the blog and stuff. And instead, I got involved in what I could only describe as the medieval pursuit of a history of one's own time. I did my thesis on a man named Adamar of Shabbat who lived from about 989 to 1034 and died in Jerusalem, came here on a one-way pilgrimage, which was a big fashion at the time among Christians, and uh, and he wrote a history of his time. In fact, he wrote a history, and there's another historian, Raoul Glaber, who also wrote a history at that time, and it was sort of like in the 1020s, they wrote a history of the turn of the millennium. And so this ended up being my history of the turn of this millennium, the 2000 millennium, and I focused on four incidents um, so the, my first four historical chapters are the outbreak of the, what's called the Al-Aqsa-Antifada, I call it the Oslo Jihad, um, and the Which Abdullah, year? what? Which year are you referring to? 2000, at the turn of the millennium. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and the Aldura, the Adura, what I consider it a staged and a blood libel uh, accusation that Israel shot this boy in his father's arms and very deliberately. And very important for people to know, you were one of the main voices at the time yeah. that was vocal in calling out yeah. the blood libel, Hollywood, right. uh, uh, production, Pallywood, right, you turned the word Pallywood, right. the whole production right. of the, the death of that right. boy blaming Israel and basically blowing up and showing that it, that it didn't happen. So that's chapter one, and I show how this story had a mythical impact, not only in the Muslim world, where it was a, a call to jihad, 
but in the West as well, where it was a call to what people call Holocaust inversion, which is mm -hmm. to say the Jews are committing genocide, the Jews are the new Nazis, and the Palestinians are their victims. They're the new Jews. Um, so that's the first chapter. The second, and, and part of what I, I track there is that this is the first time since the launch of Global Jihad, more or less unbeknownst to us in 1979, 1400 in their calendar, um, this is the first time they openly attacked a democracy. And as a result of the Abdullah story, but also a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, the journalists presented it as a resistance against Israeli colonialism. And you get what I describe as a, a mentality that sort of seizes the West at this point, which I call Y2K mind, because it's in the year 2000 that it happened. And that is when, when jihadis attack a democracy, blame the democracy. And so the second chapter is on 9-11, and I show how even though they weren't dominant, certainly not as dominant, as the voice condemning Israel, those who blamed America for 9-11 expressed themselves very rapidly. Reuters and BBC refused to use the word terrorists. Jean Baudrillard in France said anybody who doesn't cheer on the jihadis uh, doesn't love freedom, that no moral person can, can, cannot but help cheer this blow against so suffocating a hegemon as the United States. Um, and so I, I, that's the second chapter, and I show how that mentality that was sort of worked out with Israel then got applied to the United States. The third chapter is the Jenin massacre, in which I show that this lethal journalism, which is passing on jihadi propaganda, well, initially Palestinian propaganda as news, lethal journalism, becomes own goal war journalism when the, the Westerners produce not just, I mean, they don't realize it, but Palestine, they think Palestinian jihad is a nationalist movement. Uh, but it, it's part of the global jihad. And, uh, you know, the way they cheered 9-11, uh, the Palestinians cheered 9-11 and, and so on. So you have this phenomenon where the West, Western journalists are literally reporting the war propaganda of their self-declared enemies. These are people who have declared the West to be their targets and their enemies, and they're running their war propaganda as news to the targets. And then the last one is where I show how all this plays out in the Danish cartoon scandal of 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. where you have a staged emergency where they literally fake three of the most outrageously blasphemous cartoons, they being the, 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 the radical imams, um, fake cartoons of Muhammad as a pig and Muhammad being buggered while he's praying and stuff, you know, really outrageous stuff, slip it in with largely anodyne, mild by, so not only mild by our standards, but very mild by their standards in terms of how vicious their cartoons are, Muslim cartoons are. Um, they slip it in, they get days of rage, there are riots, people are being killed everywhere, and um, and the West backs down. And so it's sort of, it's the first major cognitive war victory of global jihad to extend Sharia to Dar al-Harb. To extend Muslim law, you cannot depict Muhammad, which was originally 
created, originally formulated to prevent idol worship amongst Muslims, to extend it to Westerners and tell them they must obey these laws, um, even though they're not Muslim. And the West says, oh, you know, we'd love to, we can't really punish the newspaper, but we understand how painful this is for you. And if we can do anything to prevent it from happening again, and, and anything to prevent us from offending you, we will do it. So I think it's quite apt that you title your book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Yeah. You're not saying, can journalists be wrong? No. Can some journalists be wrong? Can some edit editors be wrong? Can the whole uh, establishment media be wrong? You are specifically saying, can the whole world be wrong? Why go so, so general? Right. So first of all, note that the, in the title, the whole world is in quotes. So what I'm really doing is talking about the general consensus amongst the talking heads of the West that they speak for the whole world. So I have a video up at my site um, called um, something like Everyone Agrees. If you do Richard Landis, Everyone Agrees, you'll see it. And it's on the way journalists covered the Obama administration's refusal to veto um, a UN General Assembly resolution against Israel in 2016. Right, right, right. And, on the way and they're all talking about everyone agrees, everyone knows, the whole world knows. And actually, the title comes from a combination of two uh, quotes. One is from Echad Am, who in 1892 wrote an essay in which he described the reaction of Gentiles to Jews saying, we do... <laughs> We don't kill Gentile boys and use their blood to bake matzah. Uh, with the response, uh, can everyone be wrong and the Jews be right? Hmm. At least they were asking a question. The second quote is from Kofi Annan, the then Secretary General of the UN, in, tw in 2002, uh, in response to claims that the Israelis had massacred hundreds if not thousands of Palestinians in Jenin and that they should get out immediately. And, um, and he responded, I don't think the whole world, including Israel's friends, can be wrong. And there you really have a really good insight into the way in which these people absorb the, the lethal journalism don't question it, and then assume that anybody who disagrees must be some kind of Israeli propaganda, Zionist, far-right. Now, since 2002, we've developed new terms like white supremacist and, and so on, um, uh, that, that only, you know, the sort of most extreme people could disagree with this international consensus, which really consists of a very powerful consensus amongst what I call the information professionals, the journalists, the uh, academics, and the NGOs who do their res research projects. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the academics, because obviously the whole, the whole next generations, yeah. for a few generations already, yeah. have been educated by the academics yeah. in universities, sure. and especially the best and the brightest of, of the Jewish population, yeah. because we pride ourselves on going to right. universities right. and going for the advanced degrees and uh, all, many of the Jew, Jewish students, whether religious or not religious, no matter 
how pro-Israel or proud they are of their Jewish identity and, and pride in the Jewish state of Israel is the miracle that it is. Stepping into the university system, right. they step out of the university system, right. going through a metamorphosis of, 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 of all this anti-Israel uh, propaganda. Um, so how big of a role does, does the academic world also play in terms of influencing whether individual Jews, journalists, and, uh, and politicians and world leaders? Well, I think it's, it's huge and extremely important, and you can really spot the, the first development of this mentality of when the West, when jihadis attack the West, blame the West, in academia, and uh, you know, the, the obvious figure here is Edward Said, who in 1978 published Orientalism, in which he basically argued that any negative depiction of the Arab world is a form of racism. He didn't have the word Islamophobia yet, but he would have used it had it been available to him. Um, uh, and as a result, I have an essay actually in which I describe how whether he meant to or not, he literally blinded the West to the dangers of uh, jihad because he basically forbade people from understanding what's going on in the Middle East in terms of religious imperatives. We in the West are gone beyond religious imperatives, so everybody must have, you know, for crying out loud, it's the 21st century, people say, meaning, you know, we don't still have these medieval attitudes. Well, no, some people still have these medieval attitudes. Uh, and the same thing with honor shame. I have a chapter on on shame honor cultures, which I define as cultures in which it's not only legitimate, it's expected and in some cases required that you shed blood for the sake of honor. And the most extreme and, in my mind, revolting example is killing your daughter because she shamed your family, which I call a shame murder, not an honor killing. Right. And again, we're referring to the Muslim. The yeah, Muslim the Muslim and, and the Arab world. Now, it's not unique to the Muslim culture. And that's one of the cries of the sort of uh, uh, information professionals, which is it's unfair to single out Islam. Well, I think if we were to do, uh, it's hard to know how many of these things happen, but it's pretty clear, even with imperfect uh, uh, data, which I think would, if it were better, would would increase the the figures in favor of a reading that says a good majority of honor killings in the world today happen in Muslim and Arab countries. So going back to the question of academics and the, and and and, okay. and the role of, of academia, you're a retired professor. Yeah. I'm sure you saw changes in the academic world when yeah. you were there, yeah. and you've seen the changes go even becoming even worse and worse and worse since you left. Do you see any optimism? <laughs> uh, maybe that laugh has part of the answer already. Yeah. Any optimism of a change in the world of academia to go back towards a perspective on actually looking to research and teach the truth or at least pursuit of truth, as opposed to yeah, be ideological sure. in nature right. and shutting down all uh, all perspectives right. that go against their strict uh, the already dogma. Do yeah, their dogma. dogma. So look, um, I, I certainly saw changes as a graduate student when 
when Said's book came out. And even then, it was clear that academia was turning against uh, Israel. In fact, I remember a friend of mine saying, uh, Jews are now going into the State Department. Jews who specialize in Middle Eastern studies are going to the State Department because they can't find jobs in academia. And then I met a guy who is now at the Brookings Institute, who was a graduate school when 9-11 happened, and who went to his professor. He had come to do a thesis on Rumi, right? So a nice, mystical, a nice Muslim thinker. He wanted to do his thesis. Rumi is a poet. Okay. A, a remarkable poet. poet. A remarkable Muslim poet. Okay. okay. So he wants to do his thesis on that. He goes to his professor. He says, this is a patriotic American. I feel that I should do my thesis on jihad. And what's the origin of the... And his professor looked him square in the eye and said, if you do, that's your, the end of your career in academia. So already in 2001, the shift had occurred. And academia was now hostile to end the Middle East Studies Association, which, which lionized Said, had literally been taken over to the point where at this point it's, you know, just it's signing BDS stuff. It's just completely abandoned any effort at uh, sort of, as you say, anything beyond the dogma not permitted. So now your question is, what do I think is the possibility that this can turn around? So here I'll turn to a medieval um, perspective, which is that, you know, by the 15th century, academia in Middle Ages, Western Middle Ages, created the university, um, certainly the university as, as we know it. Um, or the university in the West, because there are Arab universities, but I, I don't think it's the same thing, but okay. Um, so there was very heavy pressure um, to get rid of heretics, literally a dogmatic uh, program for the universities. And then the printing press happened. And within a couple of centuries, the university took on a new, literally, the, the medieval university got, uh, if you will, sort of uh, circumvented. And a new university and a new set of courses appeared. For instance, in the medieval university, there's no Department of History. Departments of History are the product of the, the print revolution and so on. So I think that there is... Look, right now I'm writing a, a piece for Fathom magazine about how we've become divorced from the real world, that this dogmatic insistence has made it difficult for people. We're literally, both morally and empirically, disoriented. And I'm arguing that that disorientation is the result of the kind of stuff we've been discussing, but that, you know, at some point, reality bites. Now, at what point do you acknowledge the bite? In some senses, I see the media and, and the professors um, playing the role of, I don't know if this is the right term, but it, it was a, there was a, uh, there's a term for chronic insensitivity to pain, SIPA. And it, it, the nerves do not send messages to the brain 
of pain. And as a result, you can literally burn your hand off. Right. And you don't know it. Right. So the nerves are the media. And the media is not sending the messages of pain that reality is hitting us with because we're so stupid. Right. And, you know, one really good example of this is the failure of the peace process in the Middle East for the last 25 years. I mean, just repeatedly refusing to learn the lesson that this is about two different cultures. It's not about... I mean, one of the things I point out in this article and in the book is that, you know, whereas the West thinks that the peace process is a negotiated settlement, positive sum, land for peace, for the Palestinians, it's a ploy to get as much as they can to continue the war. So it's not land for peace, it's land for war. And you end up with literally the exact opposite shall we say, policy recommendations. People like the people in J Street, where I have some friends, or used to have some friends, um, will tell you that if only we gave more, then we'd have peace. Whereas the evidence is if only we gave more, then we'd surely have more war. So you're, I think that at some point, there's going to be a sort of reckoning. And I think that you know, look, people talk about the Internet being a serious problem, and it is a serious problem. But if you go back to the beginning of the printing of books, you know, if we had all the flyers that these printing presses were putting out, all the pamphlets and stuff, the vast majority of it would be apocalyptic, um, uh, astrological, various kinds of crazy prophecies, etc., etc. And the sort of serious stuff would have been the minority. Now, that survived. We don't have the stuff. And so the same thing with the Internet. At some point, hopefully, and I think there are ways to encourage it, the Internet will begin to settle down and begin to filter out the crap. But right now, it's swarming with crap. And one of the reasons it's swarming with crap is that academia is swarming with crap. And the journalists are swarming with crap. Right. I think, I think the biggest challenge for people is in, the, in, in a time period when we've been introduced to fake news, right. so much of the real news is fake. Yeah. And then people are... And, and then, and I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm at the forefront of this, right. big tech... Companies, social media companies, governments are working together right. to then take down the right. information that they are right. terming fake, right. which really is the truth. And then what's left for people to actually read on a day-to-day -day basis is the fake news. Right. And then they're left to believe yeah. that. And so in, in the book, I argue that the first massive episode of fake news, that by that I mean across the boards in the legacy media, because fake news on the margins is not... Serious. What's serious is when fake news permeates, enters the mainstream media, the legacy media, and in particular when it creates a consensus. So like the Janine massacre right. created a consensus, an insane consensus. It was it it was against every piece of previous evidence, evidence that Palestinians will say anything. And why constantly? Evidence that the Israelis do not line people up and shoot them in mass graves. You know, all the all the instincts were overridden by this sort of pack lethal journalism. I just want to give people the, the, the story. The Janine massacre was no massacre whatsoever. You're talking about a battle in the refugee camp next to Janine, where there were a whole bunch of Arab Muslim militants there 
and the Israeli army went in. I'm surprised to hear you use the word militant. They were terrorists. Terrorists, thank it you. It was the terror capital, was, and they called it that. Thank you. That's right. It was called They the called it right. the terror capital, and Israel went in after a year and a half of terror attacks that were devastating, and uh, it was an urban battle, um, three weeks long, and the final result was 52 to 56 dead 40 or so combatants, so a three-to-one combatant-to-civilian ratio, right. whereas it's usually the opposite in urban warfare. And that was known to the world. As the, they called it a massacre. They said hundreds of, of, of innocent civilian Arab Muslims were killed. Lined up in mass graves right. and, and they, buried with right. And that's what the right. message, the mass media, the establishment media right. was giving day in, day out. And still yeah. today, if you do Google searches, you'll, you'll still find that. And there's a movie out there. About the right. Janine Actually, the all forward, alive, all forward alive. just came out with an article by a woman uh, in which she was talking about it as if it happened. Right. right. The and, forward. Right. So this is this, this is the reality we're dealing with. Okay, so let's go back to your book then. So why should people buy this book and read the book, Richard? Why, okay. why is it important for people to buy this so book? So on some level, this book is the red pill. In other words, the whole world has been swallowing the blue pill, which is actually a poison pill, because it's really uh, jihadi propaganda. Um, that and I, 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 I want to just stop on that point for a second, and mm -hmm. I want people to really, really internalize this. You are pointing out, and this book is especially, you're using to point this out, documenting that the media we read and watch mm -hmm. every single day mm -hmm. is basically jihadi propaganda. Yes, I mean, it's, you know, softened a little because they don't want to look too. But if we were to do, and I've suggested this in the past, I just don't have the bandwidth to do it, but if we were to do a, um, what I call a Palestinian media compliance index of the degree to which the media complies with what are clearly, we can lay them out, the Palestinian demands, you know, when there are, are injured, the vast majority have to be, civilians, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the media doesn't necessarily use the language that they want, but it's quite close. And if you were to do that, you'd find that, you know, there's like an 80 to 90% compliance rate on the part of the media. They do everything they can short of openly citing. But, you know, the New York Times, after the 20, May 2021 uh, Gaza operation, had a front page with pictures of all the children who had died without indicating that at least nine or ten of them had been killed by Hamas. Palestinian kids killed by There were two Israeli kids. Why? Because we have bomb shelters. Why don't they have bomb shelters? They do have bomb shelters. They're for the bombs. They're not for the people. So, you know, and, and you get this turnaround, uh, Shirin Abu Akhla, who was killed. Al Jazeera journalist. Al Jazeera Al journalist. Was the whole with the world knows about her. Again, the whole world knows about her. The 196 other journalists, journalists who were killed in the Arab world from 2014 to 2021, nobody knows about them. So you got this, it's, it's like built in and, and it's insidious because you can't really see it uh, except in really egregious cases. And even in those cases, like for instance, in, in 2014, um, during another Gaza operation, there was an Eid al-Fitr truce and the Hamas decided to break the truce and shot four rockets, one of which 
landed on the hospital, not too much damage, but the other landed in a refugee camp where kids were coming out for the first time in weeks to play and killed 10 kids, okay? Now, Israel immediately came out with the trajectory of the rockets and so on and so forth. One journalist left Gaza and said, you know, it's clear who killed those kids and stuff. That news didn't make it out of what I call the Jewish news ghetto. In other words, somebody did a study of, you know, where stories were picked up on this, and Israelis killed those kids was the vast majority of the mainstream media, including MSNBC, BBC, etc., etc. And basically just within the ghetto uh, were people aware of what was going on. So um, it's tough. I mean, I remember I, I, I was born in France and had lots of contacts in France, spent time in France. I was there in 2003, and the French were saying, this is this is when I first got involved in the Abdullah affair, and the French were saying, the French Jews were saying, we live in a ghetto of glass. Nobody listens to us. Nobody can hear us. We are canaries. Actually, the interesting thing about canary in the mine shaft is that the canary, when the canary stops talking, you've got to worry. You know, they, they're screaming at what's happening, and nobody, nobody wanted to hear. And it, it's still true. People don't want to hear. And as you point out, lots of Jewish kids go to school and get, get flipped by this massive consensus that surrounds them. It's very hard. Um, Phyllis Chestler did a review of my book and said, every parent sending a kid to University. college should have this book because one of the things that I try and do is I, I try and and locate and describe in detail how the world flipped the whole world, how the information professionals were sucked into this pack lethal, not just journalism, pack lethal knowledge production. Um, and and I think that, you know, until you understand that, it's going to be hard to resist it. Right. Professor Richard Landis, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Where do people purchase the book now? Okay, so um, obviously Amazon, and it's available on Kindle for $10. I was very pleased that the publisher, it's $25 in paperback. Uh, so you can get it on Amazon. Uh, there is going to be a, hopefully... 100 books at the uh, available at the Bacon Center on Tuesday night. But in general, um, Pomerantz's bookstore in Jerusalem will be carrying it. And, um, yeah. Anyone, anyone, you have children in university, going to university, grandchildren in university, going to university, purchase this book. For Purim. <laughs> For Purim. For Purim, and, the, and, the, and that, that's, that's very positive. For Purim, we overcame our enemies, everybody. Overcame all the odds. Never forget that. Professor Landis, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, you're going right now. Amazon, if you're not in Israel, you're buying the book. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching another episode of The Pulse of Israel here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, in our eternal and indivisible capital, Jerusalem, since King David's time. Shalom. Pulse of Israel on frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.